case, the, the theme of my talk remains the same, <laughs> as announced earlier. It is on these two broad ways that we transform judgments. On the one hand, we explore judgments, we investigate them, we um, go deeper into their manifestations on the level of mind, on the level of body, on the level of heart. And on the other hand, we transform judgments in part by developing awakened qualities that, in a way, bring out non-judgmental aspects of us which are crucial in the transformation of judgments, even though it's not directly going into them and transforming them in some very direct way. It's quite interesting, and it's been interesting to understand the balance of these two approaches, which I think actually is quite a general balance in our spiritual practices. It's not just about judgments. It's really that in our practices, we in part go into, as it were, our difficulties, our problems, our suffering. But as Thich Nhat Hanh once said, suffering is not enough. We also need to go into our joy, our beauty, our wisdom, our brilliance, our wonderful qualities, and have ever more full sense that this is actually our deeper nature. In a way, the judgments represent, although a deep layer of ourselves, less deep than our brilliance and our beauty. So in that sense, it's a very optimistic view of who we are. And um, really locates our deeper nature in that, in those awakened qualities, as one of the ways that as we come to know that more, the judgments have less hold. Even if we haven't worked through them all, they have less hold because we come to know that they're actually uh, not our essence. So that's my theme for, for tonight, to go into more detail into what that means to give some examples, stories, poems, spontaneous utterances. <laughs> well, actually, it's, it's all spontaneous utterance, <laughs> for better or worse. So, so first, some, just some, some readings about, some quotes about judgment. And the first one, actually, is not about judgment in the sense that we're using it. It's about judgment in the sense of having good judgment in the sense of discernment. But it's a great quote. I wanted to read it anyway. It's from Mark Twain. Good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. Good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. And the second quote is from uh, Sky Cushman, the daughter of Ann Cushman, who 
the son of Sky Oh, bad mistake. <laughs> the son of Sky Krishman. <laughs> the son of Anne Krishman. <laughs> who, um, I think that it may be that the last time that we uh, taught this retreat, there may have been a parallel retreat going on at which, at which Anne was there, and Sky came for lunch one day, and we said, we're teaching about judgments. And this dialogue ensued with Sky, who was at that time age nine. Okay? Sky said, we need to have the judgmental police lock up all the judgmental people. <laughs> and then I asked, who polices the judgmental police? Sky said, themselves. They lock up the judgmental Judgmental police. <laughs> and then I asked, so they have to be pretty mature? Yes. Nine years old, now 11. <laughs> so. And uh, this is from Shanti Deva from the 8th century. This is from the text that some of you know, beloved text called A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. The Bodhisattva is the being who's dedicated to really to help others as part of the journey of awakening. It's a beautiful text. And this is about the kind of the, the dangers of unworked through judgments. In this world, unsubdued and crazed elephants are incapable of causing such harms as the miseries of the deepest hell which can be caused by the unleashed elephant of my mind. The unleashed elephant of my mind, the judgments, the stories going out of control. And then the last quote I wanted to read is from the Jewish tradition. This is from the uh, Midrash, the commentaries on the uh, Hebrew Bible. Great are the righteous, for they transform judgment into mercy. Great are the righteous, for they transform judgment into mercy, which is what we're doing. And we can really feel that in terms of the Heart, different heart practices, the forgiveness, the compassion, the loving kindness. So it's very interesting to see that there are these two rhythms of practice, the one going into the challenges, the difficulties, the, often the pain, the suffering, and the other going into uh, more what we can call awakened states or beautiful states. And it's interesting, my own experience in doing retreats, especially the retreats of my first years were that that the retreats were kind of uh, distinguished by having uh, both qualities, that quite a lot of my retreats were quite uh, wondrous. You know, I would experience greater peace than I had ever experienced or serenity or understanding, felt deep motivation, could feel calm and you know, have some of the mysterious energies of the bodies awaken, you know, and could really be filled with wonder and commitment and so forth. 
And those comprised roughly half of my retreats. The other half... <laughs> had a different nature. They involved going into, often into having retreats that had a lot of fear or a lot of pain or a lot of really, uh, a lot of difficulties, you know. I had one retreat where I was angry, uh, the whole retreat. Um, 10-day retreat, I was angry like 16 to 18 hours a day. Yeah, it wasn't full-fledged rage, but I was angry, you know. I, was, I, was, um, I, I wasn't so angry that I couldn't be mindful, though. That was key, actually. And so there is, there is this kind of rhythm. And it's very interesting. I was also reflecting that in some ways this parallels the teaching of the four truths in the Buddhist tradition. If you think of it, the first two truths, the truth that there is suffering and looking at the roots of the suffering in a kind of compulsive grasping, that that is really about the investigation of what's difficult, the opening to what's painful, to what we might call um, suffering. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit later about the distinction between pain and suffering because it's an important one. But those first two truths, which is really what we're presented with in a way at the beginning of this journey, that was the first talk given by the Buddha after his awakening was on these four truths. The first two point to the fact that we uh, have to face the pain in our lives. And for many of us, this practice is quite um, freeing because it essentially says it's wise and compassionate to face what's difficult in our lives and it's workable. I think probably for many of us, maybe not all of us, many or most of us, our conditioning basically was don't face what's difficult, get rid of it, Look for comfort. How many can relate to having had that as conditioning? Pretty pervasive in the society, you know. And um, when we are willing to open to what's difficult, we approach things in a different way. And then the latter two truths are really about the possibility of freedom and developing the qualities which are expressions of freedom. It's interesting. It really parallels this theme of the talk. And so the third truth is about is called the truth of the cessation of suffering. And I'll preview that distinction between pain and suffering. It actually, in my way I would interpret this, this isn't to say that we get rid of pain. You know, and I would maybe I'll make that distinction now that pain is the presence of the unpleasant. That's broadly, that's how I've been using the term pain in talking about judgments, that pain is the presence of the unpleasant. And so in that definition, it can be physical pain or emotional pain. We may want to use other language. For some people, pain may have connotations that are not helpful. But it really is about being with what's unpleasant, with what is, just has that sense of, that can that can um, easily 
lead to the thought, I don't like this, I want to get rid of this, and so forth. It's the presence of the unpleasant. And the, we can distinguish that from suffering. Suffering is the reactivity to the unpleasant. You know, there's, I think I'll give one, one of my favorite teachings that some of you know, which really expresses this. It's really a condensed version of the Four Truths. It's called the teaching of the two arrows, which when I first heard it, it really uh, kind of electrified me. It was really a powerful teaching. And how many of you know that teaching? So, yeah. Um, the Buddha asked the question, what distinguishes a non-practitioner from a practitioner? They both experience pain. They both experienced the unpleasant. And he gave a kind of, what, uh, analogy or a parable in a way. He said, we all are shot by the arrow of pain. As a human being, we all have the presence of the unpleasant at times, whether it's physical discomfort, emotional pain, being treated unfairly or unjustly. And then, of course, we have, as human beings, we're vulnerable and we, we all eventually uh, die. You know, these are all givens of experience. And I think that comprises what Buddha called the first arrow. We're all as if shot by an arrow, this first arrow of pain. And in that a non-practitioner does not differ from a practitioner. It's really what we do with the first arrow, with the pain, with the discomfort, with the unpleasant, that distinguishes a practitioner from a non-practitioner. He said a non-practitioner tends, when shot by the first arrow, to shoot a second arrow, as if to shoot oneself with the second arrow or to shoot others or both. And the practitioner learns not to shoot the second arrow. So what does that mean to shoot the second arrow? It would be when I feel physical discomfort or physical pain, my conditioned tendency is to react by tightening or clenching, right? And I like to cite what I've heard from doctors who say that 80% of physical pain of patients is actually the reaction to what's there rather than the original sensation. That would lead us to understand how meditation can be so powerful in a medical context. Think of the work of John Kabat-Zinn and others as really bringing this practice and saying, there is a certain amount of discomfort, but we can teach you how not to react so much and to minimize the ensuing pain from the reactions and just to be with the original pain. So that's the second arrow. We learn not to shoot the second arrow so much, but we tend to shoot it if we're not mindful and aware. Emotionally, something difficult happens to me. I may often shoot the emotional second arrow at myself or others. Something difficult happens to me. I judge myself harshly, that's the second arrow. I blame someone else, that's the second arrow. 
Someone says something mean to me, I say something mean right back, that's the second arrow. A whole population receives pain from another group and they fight back and inflict pain on the first group, have a conflict, a war, that's the second arrow. And so this really revolutionary approach is to learn not to shoot the second arrow. It's part of what we're learning here better, right? We're learning to work through reactivity. That's what not shooting the second arrow is. It's not being taken away by reactivity. And we learn that in meditation. And what I love also is that uh, this really is applicable internally, interpersonally, and it's actually in terms of communities and even uh, nation states. For example, I interpret the work of Gandhi and King as applying this exact principle, saying we have received pain, we will not react and cause further pain. We will stop the cycles of pain and violence here. You know? And it's the same principle. So that's why for me, this practice we do is unified with these other levels that we can work It's quite, for me, inspiring to see that. There's really a unified way that we can work with these kind of challenges. And so so the third and fourth truths of the Buddha are really to gain increasing experience that that our deeper nature is beyond suffering. Again, suffering understood as the uh, reactivity, defining pain as the presence and the unpleasant, suffering as the reaction to that. In that sense, we sometimes say pain is a given at times, suffering is optional. And there there was a a beautiful story that I heard when I, um, uh, I was teaching in Kentucky last fall and someone told me the story of a, a woman who uh, was in her 50s and she was at a hospice. She had cancer and she, I think, was, uh, she was an amputee. Pretty dire conditions. She had posted on her hospital bed, pain is, is inevitable, suffering is an option. Right there in the hospice ward. Right? She was pretty intense, right? Pretty working with that. And so the third truth tells us that there is something beyond suffering, that, there's, that we can live maybe with pain, but not necessarily be stuck or caught in suffering. You know? I think it's quite important. The Buddha had pain. Later in his life, the Buddha had headaches. And also... Um, had a bad back. I really totally appreciate that that was not censored out of the text. So the Buddha sometimes would say at night, hey Ananda, my back is killing me. Can you, can you give the talk tonight? <laughs> you know, that's very encouraging. <laughs> so, and then, and then in a way the fourth truth is pointing to these awake qualities that we can develop. So, the fourth truth is saying we can develop understanding and wisdom and be skillful in our speech 
and develop mindfulness and concentration and these qualities. So it's really very parallel to the theme of the talk. We want to both really study suffering, go into it, but we also want to develop these other qualities. And that really is one way to understand our entire practice in terms of those two aspects. And it becomes an art form as we practice with judgments as to know when to emphasize one and when to emphasize the other. You know? And especially in our daily lives, that sometimes we can go into the difficulties, into the difficulties, into difficulties, and sometimes it's a lot, too much. And sometimes we need to go to the, go to the joy. I think I mentioned the story of someone with whom I was working who was doing the dropping down practice a lot especially at family gatherings. (laughs) Difficult, painful, right? We'd go to these family gatherings and something difficult would come from one relative. She'd she'd watch the judgments forming, then she'd go into her upper body and heart area and she'd feel sadness and even anguish. And she would just drop down and do that over and over again. And she came to me one day and said, oh my gosh, this is intense, you know? I said, time for joy, right? <laughs> time for, to focus on the joy. And that's the, that's the art form of it. So I want to say some further things about each of those two uh, ways of transforming judgments. The going into the judgments themselves, which is more going into what's difficult, what's sometimes painful, and then going into the more awakened qualities. So what we've been learning are really, in part, a number of tools with which to study judgments, go more into them, become more acquainted with them, how they work in the mind, the body, the heart. We start with mindfulness practice. We look closely at the judgments. We start getting them on our radar. We start tracking them. We start noticing them more carefully. We study how they are when they last for a while in our hearts, in our bodies. We may do some of the practices like the practice we did this morning of looking and even exaggerating the somatic manifestation of the judgment. And I just want to say that um, uh, in giving a lot of these practices, we're not really expecting that all of them click instantly for you. But partly we're giving you a repertoire and we're recording the guided, the guided meditations on them, so you can use them later. So if they don't all click right now, that's fine. And a lot of them, even if they would click in the long term, they, you know, just doing them once or twice is more getting introduced to them. I just wanted to say that. You know? And if there are three or four practices out of the whole set that you really are connecting with, that's great, and that's enough for now. And then the others are there, and you can come back to them when you, when you want to. They'll be available in terms of both your learning here In fact, when I work with people, maybe over a 12-month period, I do one or two practices at a time. And we do that for a month or two. And then we go on to the next one. But being a retreat, I I wanted to, we wanted to really at least have some exposure to all of them. And then you can use them as you see fit. So we we notice the, the, um, the the judging. We notice the way it appears. You know, we track it more carefully. 
we notice the nagging voices, the various forms that judgment occurs. You know, there's, there's a pretty good, good book, I think, very good book, uh, on the so-called inner critic that came out just last year by Jay Early and Bonnie Weiss that's on the reading list, on the resources sheet. And they list seven forms that the inner critic appears. They, they talk about the perfectionist, the inner controller, the taskmaster, the underminer, the destroyer, the guilt tripper, and what they call the molder, which is like trying to mold us into some, according to social norms, maybe from our parents or from the society. So these, we, we study and we start to see, okay, here's the nature of my inner critic or the way I, I'm an outer critic. We really get familiar <clears throat> with those voices. We get so familiar that we may get very tired of them. You know, and we may, I was thinking of, um, I was thinking of a comment that Gil Fronsdell, who teaches here, once made about our own inner dialogue and our own inner commentary. He said that if we had a, a person who walked around next to us saying the same things that we say to ourselves, we would find that person one of the most obnoxious persons in the history of humanity. <laughs> and yet we're quite okay saying it to ourselves, right? <laughs> so, so we start to see the patterns. We start to see the patterns of our judgments as we look more carefully. You know, and this is something we can find as we look when we bring this out into daily life. You know, and I was thinking a lot of our a lot of our difficult relationships may involve judgments. I was thinking of one of mine that I got clear. You know, it was this was um, a um, a former partner. We you know we would. Um, find ourselves sometimes in a dysfunctional pattern. I think every relationship has one major dysfunctional pattern. <laughs> At least. <laughs> At least. <laughs> but often there's a major one. There's a really central one, and then there are minor auxiliary <laughs> patterns. You know, and our, here was our pattern, and it really was helpful to see it more clearly. Our major dysfunctional pattern was this. My partner would sometimes get stressed. She would judge me for my shortcomings. <laughs> I would feel not having at that point done a lot of this judgment work <laughs> and being having plenty of raw material for future learning. Um, I would feel unfairly judged and I would judge her for unfairly judging me. At which point, she would feel unfairly judged (laughs) and she would withdraw emotionally. Dysfunctional pattern number one. major pattern. So you can see how we get caught like that, but seeing the patterns is part of the work we do. Just to see, this is my personal pattern, this is my pattern in this relationship. And of course, you know, in retrospect, it does have some humor, right? In the moment, it was pretty rough. And it was pretty, uh, pretty hard, actually. You know, and a lot of suffering. And 
um, some learning. <laughs> so, so we notice that. We notice these kind of patterns and we keep going into them. We notice what, it's, we notice what the judgments are like in the body. We really study them, you know, and we, we look at the, um, we look at them, and this is where the meditation training and the understanding of the teaching of the two arrows comes in. Because this key capacity in transforming judgments in this first mode is the ability to be with the unpleasant and not run away. Not what we want, not easy, but this is one of the capacities which we're cultivating at this retreat, which is completely essential for transforming judgments. And we're expanding our capacity to be with the unpleasant in a balanced way. Through the mindfulness, through being unbalanced, noticing that and coming back. And we do that over and over again. You know? And this is where we need that other mode of transformation of sometimes going to the beautiful qualities. Because we have to be careful in working with judgments that we are actually, when we're being with the unpleasant, that we actually are mindful and relatively balanced. If we are reactive, out of balance, swept away by the judgment, it's not helpful. It actually tends to reinforce the judgment because we're not mindful, we're not present. So being aware, that's, where, that's the wisdom aspect, being aware of that distinction, really, really crucial. You can ask yourself sometimes, am I really being mindful when you're with something difficult? And if you're not, and if you're kind of swept away, somewhat overwhelmed, go for the antidote that brings you back to balance. Really, really crucial point. As we go into the difficult, we do expand that capacity. You know, it's, there's a beautiful poem by Rumi which really talks about that capacity, which I, which I love. Um, about, and it really points to this mysterious aspect with judgments that the more we can actually go into it and touch the pain, the judgments get transformed. Mysterious. This is Rumi. God speaks, no, let's see. No, wrong one. That was Rilke. <laughs> there they are. You know, perhaps Rilke is Rumi reborn. I don't know. <laughs> but both great poets. But maybe Rilke later. This is Rumi. God's presence is there in front of me. A fire on the left. That was really the fire of pain. A fire on the left. A lovely stream on the right. One group walks towards the fire. Into the fire. Another towards the sweet flowing water. No one knows which are blessed and which not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the stream. A head goes under on the water surface. The head pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion are cheated with this reversal. The trickery goes further. 
The voice of the fire tells the truth, saying, I am not fire. I am fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. If you are a friend of God, fire is your water. Somehow each gives the appearance of the other. To these eyes you have now, what looks like water burns. What looks like fire is a great relief to be inside. That's a challenging teaching, right? Challenging teaching. We go into the judgments further. As we go deeper into them, we sometimes are able, as we go deeper, to see yet more fundamental patterns. Sometimes we can begin to sense that there are what we might call core limiting beliefs connected with some of our chronic judgments. That there are ancient uh, beliefs that we may have held since we were very young that may be linked with some of the judgments. They may be limiting beliefs like, I am not okay. Like Heather was saying, I am not enough. I cannot depend on others. I am flawed. My needs will not be met. The world is a dangerous place. I should be like others where people won't like me, and so forth. And probably we could fill that out with 10 or 20 more if you have a sense maybe. And I think we sometimes have a sense of what is connected with some of the judgments, particularly, I think, both judgments of self, but especially that, and judgments of others. And part of the work of looking at judgments is to start to have a sense sometimes that there might be these limiting beliefs connected with our judgments. As we go deeper into them, we sometimes can see that. We sometimes can notice that. You know, I'll tell a story of someone who I worked with and still I'm working with, but over about a four-year period, we did a lot of work with judgments. This person was in a monthly judgment group probably for close to two or three years. And we also started to do one-on-one work together. This person, uh, at first, was trying to just be mindful of judgments. We used practices like the RAIN practice, like that Heather gave last night, to try to just investigate the judgments. As we worked further, and this took time, As we work further, this person started to have a sense of how widespread the judgments were. And in fact, this person soon began to find that the judgments were there like a cloud in the morning. She would wake up and in the morning there would be a sense of I'm going to mess things up today. Or another voice, kind of like a limiting belief, which started to get clearer was, I don't matter. And this was a very functional person. Steady job. You know, functional in the societal sense, you know. Of a very steady job. 
um, homeowner, marriage, two kids, sending them to college and so forth. And yet that cloud had been with her since she was very young. And as we did the practice, we started to get clearer that those clouds were actually there. At first, it's like a fog, right? And as we did the work, the mindfulness, the practice, they started to become clearer. And we worked, in a way, with both really noticing those limiting beliefs, starting to get a sense of them. And we also found in doing inner work that they had particular historical origins, that the voice came from certain people in the family. It wasn't hard to see that. You know, as we investigated more, it came from both parents and older brother constantly saying, um, you'll mess up, right? Internalized. And of course, the person, as I mentioned, often, most of the time, didn't mess up. But every time that this cloud was there, and sometimes when things didn't go well, the voices came back really, really strong. So we worked together, and again, this took time, and one of our, our, we had these two strategies. On the one hand, we wanted to really see those patterns and have enough mindfulness so that when they came up, we had to study them, notice them, but notice when they came up, mindfulness would say, they're here. So we worked with seeing them first thing in the morning. Could really say, okay, they're here. Okay, I noticed that. And we developed, um, then we used the second kind of way of transforming judgments. This person enrolled in James Barris's Awakening Joy class and found that spending a lot of time going into the state of joy and having ways of accessing joy quickly provided a ready antidote in the morning. And so over time, as the joy got more powerful, we worked with the practice of using the mindfulness to notice when the voices were there and then applying the antidote to actually go into the joy to basically shift the energy because the voices were too strong. Shifting the energy and that was one tool we used. Over time we used a lot of tools. Eventually there was a lot of wisdom which developed about the voices and we didn't even need to find an antidote. There enough wisdom came, enough clarity, enough sense of this is not who I really am could develop. You know, from contacting the joy, from contacting these other ways of being. And so she knew those voices are actually wrong. Big step, right? Huge step. Those voices are actually wrong. It took the cultivation of the joy to really learn more, oh, I have a different center of gravity. You know? That's not those voices. It's not that feeling bad. And as that center of gravity got stronger, there was more wisdom and clarity about who she really was, who she really is. It took time. And then at a certain point, she could actually um, sometimes hear the voices and say, no, I see you. Much like the Buddha, if you know some of the texts, the Buddha would have the visit of Mara. You know? 
And what Mara is like the deceiver, almost like the devil in the Buddhist cosmology. And this was the this was this is the being who challenged the Buddha in, in the story that Heather told last night. And the Buddha would often say, Mara would come around a lot. It's kind of interesting to think about. It. It's kind of you could interpret this as the residues of the Buddha's conditioning coming back. You could interpret it that way. And what the Buddha always said was, I see you, Mara. Meaning, I see that conditioning starting. Could interpret it like that. And at that point, Mara would either slink away or would sometimes disappear in smoke. I see you, Mara. So this person would say, I see those voices starting. And some, you know, we'd use a lot of different tools. Sometimes we'd just say, no, that's not who I am. Sometimes we'd say, get out of here. <laughs> and sometimes we'd use some forcefulness. You know, um, and we would also we also worked a lot with the tool of um, developing familiarity with this embodied awakened state that we introduced uh, what um, this morning, right? That she really gravitated to that practice and. She would off. She had work that that was kind of being. Uh, it, was, it was kind of like um, landscaping work, basically. And she would. So she it was physical, and she didn't wasn't mental work. And she could actually bring awareness of the body in, and often would really connected with these practices, and would actually go into an awakened embodied state, and could often sometimes be with that for the better part of, of the whole day, for days on end totally shifted the center of gravity, you see? So we're kind of getting a sense of how these two modes of transformation can work together in a real-life example. And I think for, for a year or two, things have stabilized. The old voice has almost no power. It takes like a total huge crisis for it to come up for a while, but then the tools are strong and the understanding is strong, and those old voices are basically gone, you know? Or they're, they don't have power. It's, the transformation has occurred, really, in a way, in these two ways. Having enough mindfulness to notice when the judgmental voices are there and these other tools that help to, help to really transform. Part of that process was really having insight into the core belief connected with the judgments, you know, to really see that the voice was basically saying, you'll mess up, you're not good enough. And so we may want to reflect on, is there a core belief connected with my own um, chronic judgment, either of self or other, you know? And to look into that, to reflect on that. So we develop this we start developing these more awakened qualities, these non-judgmental states, these really new way of being, core part of our transformation of judgments. We do that without even necessarily thinking about judgments. Kind of interesting, you know. It's really a little mysterious, and I kind of got clearer on this, kind of through my own experience, through trial and error. But it really makes sense that we need partly to shift our center of gravity so that we actually know our deeper nature. 
We know that more and more and we cultivate it. Uh, we cultivate that and we have this growing understanding that the judgments come often out of older conditioning and they reflect almost like um, something that's been around for a while, often younger, almost like what we can call younger parts of ourselves that have been there for a long time, not mature parts of ourselves. And as we strengthen what we call the awakened qualities, our own mature, wise being gets bigger. It expands. That's a lot of what we do in spirit with spiritual practice. You know, so our mindfulness develops, our loving kindness develops, our wisdom develops, compassion, capacity for forgiveness, all the qualities we're developing here, we start to feel more and more, and it's not a linear process, and it's not always quick, but we start to feel that those qualities, you know, might be clarity, might be brilliance, might be the open heart, the vulnerable heart, that those qualities of ourselves we come to see are actually my true nature. And it's not something which we believe as a concept, but it's something that we come to know from the inside as we hang out there more and more. And so really every moment that we're mindful, that we're having loving kindness moves us in that direction, you know. And we, we come to see that some of all the drama starts to fall away and, seem, and we can see that there's something bigger that we are. I like, uh, John Travis has a nice phrase for it. He calls it the big. <laughs> but there's a big aspect. There's a beautiful few lines from the Ojibwe, uh, Native American. Sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the time I am being carried on great winds across the sky. Sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the time I'm being carried on great winds across the sky. And so we develop, you know, we develop in these different practices. We develop uh, the metta. We develop the kindness, you know, and we, we really come to have that be very, very basic, this, this, this quality of loving kindness, of, of, of a kind of warmth and compassion towards ourselves and others starts to come closer to the center. You know, um, one of my mentors um, is Houston Smith, a well-known uh, writer. And he told a story once of meeting with um, Aldous Huxley, the great, the great writer. He told the story, he said, um, Aldous Huxley said, you know, it's embarrassing. After all these years, I'm often asked about the most profound questions, metaphysical and so forth. And his answer is always, try to be a little kinder. <laughs> so we come more and more to ground in that, in the, in the loving kindness, the compassion. And the body practices are really, really important for that, I think, because they really start grounding it. So it's... And, Ultimately, I think that's we really are emphasizing this balance of practices of the mind, practices of the heart, practices of the body. We also 
develop further wisdom practices, which we haven't always mentioned so much, but I think it's really a significant part of judgments, you know, and part of that is having the, pers- the long-term perspective, that's part of wisdom, having the knowledge of these two modes of transformation and having the wisdom to know what's appropriate right now, where do I feel called, so we develop our own intuition and in a way, you know, uh, ultimately in this practice we become our own teachers. Actually, we, we develop, uh, you know, we have help from others, but ultimately, and of course, day to day, we have to become our own teachers to a large extent, you know, with help and with support. You know, so we, we um, can also develop, very importantly, with judgments. We start to have a sense of, in working with judgments from ourselves or with others, we start to have a sense of, of some of the causation patterns that cause the judgment. This can really lead to compassion. You know, we see how we judge ourselves. If we have an understanding of the roots of that judgment, maybe in the way we were conditioned. In the vast web of causes and conditions, it can lead to compassion and understanding. It's a beautiful quote from uh, Longfellow. Let me see where this is. He says, he says this in reference to others. If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. It's that, that's part of the wisdom. You know, I remember once when uh, um, I had this conflict with another person, I really had this sense that I wanted to um, see how we were both coming from our own conditioning. And it helped tremendously to just not be quite so judgmental. To see how that is, what are my conditions leading me to be judgmental? What, what are the conditions with the other person? Can be so helpful in that way. And so as we, as we practice with both of these capacities, and as we, as we develop in the awakened qualities, I mentioned that we use them in several ways. We use the awakened qualities to shift our center of gravity. We use them as an antidote at certain moments, you know, like my student did with those morning voices. We just access joy. We do the practices that she had been doing to develop joy. The voices would come, shift the energy into joy, and the voices would subside. We want, that's why we want to practice the metta, the compassion, and these practices enough so they get really strong. We need to practice them every day. The mindfulness has to be strong enough to see the judgments. The loving kindness has to be strong enough to be there, kind of to come in to the rescue when we're vulnerable. And so the, the daily practice is really important to do that. And then, I, like I mentioned, uh, in, the, in the example of the person who was seeing so much pain with the dropping down practice. We use it to find a balance in our psyche. We have to, we, to if a significant part of judgment work is being in contact with what's painful, we need to go to joy, to metta, to these beautiful qualities, mindfulness, peace, to balance ourselves. And again, that's something we ask. So I think I'm going to end with one of my favorite poems, which I think really expresses this, um, 
these two aspects. You know, this is a poem by Mary Oliver. Some of you know it's called The Journey. You know, and it is one of my favorite poems. And during a really challenging time for myself, actually during the time when I was doing a lot of work with judgments, this was the poem that was my, one of my main reference points. Because you'll hear that it talks about really becoming familiar with the voices in our own minds. In the poem, they're called The Voices Which Offer Bad Advice. <laughs> Self-judgments are these voices which offer bad advice. Becoming really, really familiar with them and actually learning to say no, learning to see them, to say no, and then to go into what we might call the larger life, our larger being. This is one way to interpret this poem. So I'll end with this. The Journey by Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. As you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Let's just sit quietly for a little while.
So thank you so much for your kind attention. Attention is actually a form of love. Thank you for that. And please continue with your practice.